Hello, my beautiful Burns, and welcome to today's episode. Uh, there's a lot going on in today's episode. I'm going to be talking about defensiveness. I'm going to talk about why we are defensive, what defensive behaviors are, and I'll kind of explain each different behavior. And I'm also going to talk about how to deal with someone who is defensive, in particular, a partner, someone that you're dating, married to, de facto with, whatever. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people are defensive and it's kind of a sliding scale. Some people are a little bit defensive, but it's, you know, whatever. And other people are just impossible to raise anything with where they feel attacked and it's just game over and it's very frustrating for the other person because you feel like you get nowhere, absolutely nowhere in any discussion. You feel that you can't pull them up on anything because they get really offended, they get their walls up, they attack, etc., etc. So I'm going to talk about that why they do it in the first place and kind of a few things that you can try um, to make your life a bit easier dating someone who is defensive. Now I have, I'm not going to do a little update today because there's a lot to pack in, but we've got a brain fact today. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to start doing my the listener questions or the listener stories at the end of the episode. So at the end of every episode, I'm going to read out a listener story. If you want this to be anonymous, um, or if you want me to say your name in these stories, please just write that in the email. And again, if you do want to send in your listener stories um, slash questions, then send it in an email to info at dyfmpod.com. So info at dyfmpod.com and that's where you can send your questions or your stories. When you do that though, make sure you read it out and aim to have it fit into less than two minutes if possible because sometimes they just get like a bit too long and then I'm not able to include them in the podcast. But if they can fit roughly around the two-minute mark or less, then that would be amazing. Okay, let's get straight into today's episode. Let's get into the brain fact of today. Okay, so Today's brain fact, I'm going to be talking about the EpiPen, but in order for me to talk about the EpiPen, what I would like to do is to go into the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system, because I think I've kind of brushed on it in the past and I've mentioned these titles of nervous systems before, but I think it's good to understand the difference between both of those. And then I'll go into the EpiPen. And once you understand both these nervous systems, it's, it's the EpiPen explanation is very quick. So let's start with the nervous systems. When we look at the nervous system, there's a lot going on. I'm not going to go into all the components of it, but you have your central nervous system and your peripheral nervous system. Central nervous system is anything, brain, spinal cord, spine, pretty much anything that's like encased in the dura mater. It's where the cerebral spinal fluid flows. That's your central nervous system. Then you have your peripheral nervous system. So it's the nerves that extend beyond that into the periphery. So that's stuff that's controlling you know, your limbs, your senses, your organ function, all of that. Now, as part of the peripheral nervous system, we have something called the autonomic nervous system. So think of it as automatic. That's how I like to think about it. Like it's involuntary and they are reflexive. And when you think of reflexive, think of a reflex, like something's occurring without you making it happen. It's just a reflexive thing, right? So this Nervous system regulates involuntary physiological processes within the body. So this is all the automatic stuff that occurs within you um, that whether you want it to happen or not. And if you tried to stop it, it would you'd have a very hard time stopping it. So this is stuff like breathing, heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, etc. Now this autonomic nervous system can be further broken down into two categories. This is where you've got your sympathetic nervous 
and your parasympathetic nervous system. So let's start with the parasympathetic. This is what takes care of the whole rest and digest. I may or may not have spoken about this before. So this keeps everything running smoothly. It's controlling homeostasis within the brain and within the body. So this is what sends messages to produce saliva, to start digesting. So the secretions within the stomach so you can digest food. Um, it decreases your heart rate so you can relax. Or And if you've been somewhere where your heart rate's gone up for whatever reason, it's your parasympathetic system that's regulating it to bring your heart rate back down now that it doesn't need to be elevated. Um, it relaxes the muscles in your body. It allows for you to go to the bathroom, urine to flow, all of that. And it actually operates slower than the sympathetic nervous system. So once it's kicking in, it's a, it's a much slower process to kick in and to make everything slow down than the sympathetic nervous system is. And the neurotransmitters that, that are controlling this parasympathetic nervous system is acetylcholine. There's more, there's more going on, but it's acetylcholine, and I've spoken about that before. Now, we've got the sympathetic nervous system. So this is your flight or fright, and you guys have probably heard about that a lot, flight or fright when your body goes into that, and that is your sympathetic nervous system. So this is muscle contractions, pupils dilating, um, glycogen in your body, glycogen stores get converted into glucose really quickly for, a, for quick energy that your muscles can use straight away. Your saliva production and your stomach secretion production goes down. So there's no digestion, no saliva. And that's partially to do with the fact that it's trying to preserve energy. And it's pulling kind of the blood away from those organs and taking them to the organs that need it um, or the muscles that need it. Uh, dilate your, your bronchial tubes, your lungs dilate so you can take in more oxygen. Your heart starts pumping faster to get blood to your muscles as fast as possible and, and oxygen so they can perform better. So like I said, it's flight or fright. And it's what our body does when it responds to danger. So you see danger, you see your fear, and it needs to equip itself as fast as possible so it can react very, very quickly. Now the added, ben and, and the neurotransmitters that are working here are epinephrine, norepinephrine. This is also known as adrenaline, okay? So the added benefit of adrenaline here is you also have a reduced response to pain or a reduced ability to feel pain when it's there. So that way you can get away from the danger as quickly as possible and not be slowed down basically. So you hear about people getting like a shot 10 times, point blank, and they're like, and I ran away and I didn't feel anything until everything come down and they were in excruciating pain. That's just textbook happens to people when they are in like life or death situations and they just have to get out. The body just does not slow them down by sending them pain signals. Only when the body is now in a safer place, safer or safe place, does your body send you the pain signals to let you know how important it is obviously to get help to get those wounds attended to so you don't die or you don't bleed out, okay? Now, this adrenaline, this norepinephrine, that increases your performance. So due to all these physical changes that you've just had happen, your performance is enhanced massively and also your focus is intensified. So on a much smaller scale without it being so dramatic, this is what happens when you're, you know, if you're an athlete performing or if you're someone getting on a stage, you kind of get a bit of that adrenal adrenaline response. So epinephrine, so the, the neurotransmitters that are occurring within the sympathetic nervous system and that are driving all these actions are epinephrine and norepinephrine. Like I said, it's known as adrenaline. So these two, these guys are both hormones and they work together 
So they're similar but with slightly different actions. But they work together and they're responsible for for everything fight, flight, freeze when you're when you're in danger. And when treating – so now, now talking about the EpiPen, interestingly enough, when you're treating anaphylaxis, it is epinephrine, adrenaline, which is injected. And like I said before, the parasympathetic nervous system is quite slow acting. The sympathetic nervous system is very fast acting. You'll see that when you inject someone with an EpiPen when they're having an anaphylactic reaction to something, the response is quite quick. Like it's pretty impressive how quickly – the action takes place. And this is the number one first treatment that's going to be used on a patient when they go into anaphylaxis. It's not always what works, but in most, I would say, majority of all cases, it is working. Because think about it, when somebody goes into anaphylaxis, the symptoms are the opposite to what is happening in flight or fright. So your bronchial tubes are closing. When you go, when your, your sympathetic nervous system is dilating your bronchial tubes. It's opening everything up. It's getting more oxygen. But when you go into anaphylaxis, it's the opposite. Your bronchial tubes are closing. Nausea, vomiting. There's too much going on in your stomach. There's too much getting secreted. Fainting, feeling lightheaded, shortness of breath. So all those things, it's the opposite of what adrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine does within the sympathetic nervous system. So that's what happens. You get injected with the EpiPen, um, and then it starts to reverse all these things that are happening. It literally reverses them because of these hormones slash neurotransmitters that get released. And probably not that groundbreaking for you given what I've just said, but the EpiPen is called EpiPen because it's epinephrine pen. Uh, good times. That is the brain fact for today. Okay, so let's get on to the topic of today, which is defensiveness. So I want to break it down into two categories. Category number one is how to be less defensive and understand where it's coming from and also how to deal with people who are defensive, okay? Um, because I feel like a lot of us are put in a situation where we have to deal with someone who's defensive, but there are some of us who are in like a relationship with somebody who's very defensive and it's really difficult to get your point across. It's really difficult to just to just give them, you know, some feedback on something that they're doing that you wish they would do differently or something like that. And they just put their walls up, they shut you down. And it's really, really hard to be in a relationship with a person like that. There are things you can do to improve the situation. But one of the best things that you can do is to acknowledge the kind of warning signs when they're about to get defensive and how to approach it differently so you can still get your point across and without having to like turn this into an argument every single time or turn it into, oh, they're not going to talk to me or turn it into something where they're turning around and insulting you because they felt insulted even though that's not what you were doing. Okay, so the first thing that I want to talk about is what is defensiveness and where does it come from? So defensiveness is an attachment of your sense of self to whatever it is that is being criticised or argued or, you know, um, you know, even constructive criticism or feedback. Whatever that is, you're attaching a lot of who you are and your identity to that thing. So if someone criticises an athlete who you're obsessed with, you're going to take personal offence to it and you're going to get really defensive. Or if someone criticises how you washed the dishes, you feel like you've been personally attacked. Hence, you defend yourself when the thing that has been criticised might not have anything to do with yourself and your sense of self, but you've created that attachment subconsciously 
And so you feel personally attacked when something on the peripherals of your life is what you deem to be is being attacked. Even if it's not even an attack, you'll see it as an attack, you'll see it as a threat to yourself, to your ego, to whatever, and you'll then become defensive. Now, this is why even when someone deep down knows that they're wrong or knows that they're losing an argument or is headed down the path of losing an argument, will pull their claws out and get very sassy and potentially hurtful and insulting because they interpret it as an attack. So they're defending themselves and they'll do what it takes to defend themselves and they can get quite aggressive or really passive aggressive as a way of defending themselves. So this defending stops being about the thing that's being discussed or the thing that's being argued about, but it ends up being them or you defending your identity, defending who you are as a person, okay? If you can detach who you are to that thing that's being criticized or that action that you did that is being criticized, then you're not going to interpret it so heavily as an attack. You can separate the two and it's a lot easier to take feedback. It's a lot easier to admit that you are wrong in something if you don't attach who you are your sense of self to that thing. It also becomes a lot easier to let go of something way earlier on in the piece. You know, you have a disagreement with someone and you you can in much easier like in a much easier way you can turn around and say, "You know what? There's a big chance that you're right. There's a there's a chance that my facts are wrong. So, I'm not going to argue this point any further because I'm possibly wrong here." You know, and and Boom, it's done. Instead of thinking like, no, 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 argue it to the death, argue it to the death. You know, you start sweating on your eyelids and you're Googling it. You're trying to prove them wrong. And then if the Google result doesn't show up what you wanted it to show up, you start Googling something else to kind of prove that you were right in some sense. And you end up going insane when it was just a casual conversation at the dinner table because you took it as, oh my God, I cannot be wrong. Because if I'm wrong, it means that I as a person, human being, who I am, my identity is flawed even though it's not the case at all. So it's all about learning to detach yourself from the thing, from what's being argued, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what do these defensive behaviors look like? There can be, there's a whole bunch of defensive behaviors. It's not just an attack. So of course it can be the attacking where you start insulting the other person. You start um, the character assassination of the other person. Like you feel attacked, so then you're going to one-up them so they never try and attack you again. And that's where you make you try and make that person feel really small. You say things about them directly like, well, you're this and you're that and you must be an idiot if X, Y, Z, that kind of attacking. Then we've got denial where you blatantly deny, deny, deny something that's a straight-up fact. Like someone said, oh, did you – did you do this? Like, did you put the rubbish here and now it's leaked on the carpet and whatever and you blatantly deny it instead of being like, oh, fuck, yeah, that was me. Like something tiny around the house that people around the house that you live with just try and just say, hey, was this you? You will deny it because you think if you admitted it, you, you'll just crumble and burst, combust into flames. Denial. Then you've got blame shifting. You'll never accept responsibility for something. You'll always shift it onto either an, an external circumstance that occurred, oh, no, but this happened and so I wasn't able to, or you'll directly shift it to the person that's attacking you or somebody else. But it's this idea of you absolutely could not possibly take to accept the blame because you look at it as accepting the blame as you being a failure. That's how you interpret it as, even though for me there's nothing more attractive in a person who can admit their wrongs and accept blame when it's due. To me, that is one of the most attractive personality traits. It screams strong fucking, 
you know, confident energy. They know they, they own their shit and I fucking love that. But when someone's defensive, that's the last thing that they're going to do. Um, and then playing the victim is a huge one. So you might pull them up on something and you'll be like, do you know how hard it is for me to blah, 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 blah. Like instantly they turned it around to play the victim. So then you feel like, oh, fuck, I feel really bad because I brought this up, but you're going through a really hard time or, or well, in perspective, maybe I shouldn't have even mentioned this. or they'll, they'll try and make you feel really guilty for having brought something up um, and that's playing the victim. And then there's avoiding avoidance behavior. So avoiding someone or something. So you might pull them up or someone pulls them up and they automatically don't want to talk to you. They don't want to hang out with you. They go really quiet. They retreat and it takes them ages to open up again. And it's really difficult if you've got that constant pattern of avoidance and then, you know, coming back, avoidance, coming back. Um, that's really common with children the avoidance one, not, not all children, obviously, and that's not the only defensive behaviour that children have. Children do a lot of defensive behaviours, actually, until they learn, until they get the emotional maturity to understand what it is to accept something and own something and, like, own their actions and understand consequences to their actions. Um, but avoidance is a big one. It's kind of like if you tell the child off for doing something, they'll then lock themselves in the room and they don't want to come out and they don't want to eat and they refuse to come for dinner and they don't want to drink water and blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of this, you know, really dramatic way of, you know, they're obviously being very insulted, but that's their their um, defensiveness coming out. Really, really common in kids and teenagers. Now, if you look at things that you interpret as an attack, it's kind of like a sliding scale. There's some things that you might deem to be really close to your sense of self and other things that are related but not that closely attached. So you've got small tasks that you've done around the house that you might not have done properly. But then you've got things like your performance in your job or how you look um, or the way you – like your style and the way you dress um, – that those kinds of things are probably more linked to your identity because it's it's on you, it's your actual actions, something that you've done, how you treated somebody, all these things are going to feel a lot closer to your sense of self. But then there's also affiliations that feel really, really close to your sense of self. Uh, religion is a huge one, as, you know, your affiliation with a religion where you really identify and that is part of your identity. A lot of people will identify so heavily with a religion or a political party or a big one is sporting teams. Some people will, will be so diehard, so diehard on a sporting team. All you need to do to see the neurosis of sporting fans is jump on any Instagram or Facebook page and watch fans of each sporting team abuse the fans of the other side. Like it, it's wild how many crazy cunts there are out there who are willing to just abuse someone they don't know defending a team or an athlete that they're so that they're so heavily affiliated with like or who they who they attach themselves with all you have to do you know what go fucking look at uh, like I love formula 1 love formula 1 but the social media posting of the fans and the shit that people say to each other is just so extreme and that's that's a really prime example of defensiveness where someone's attached their their identity to this team or athlete that they will like straight up abuse somebody they've never even met just over a keyboard so that's typical typical textbook defensiveness because someone's attached themselves to something else and it's you know Fair enough to make a comment and fair enough to have an opinion, but when you lose your cool about something that's not even an important part of your life, that's when you know that someone's 
you know, cross that line into the, that defensiveness zone. Now, why do we become defensive? So you've got to look at it as a defense mechanism. It is a way of defending yourself. So sometimes there are rational cases in defending yourself, but when we talk about defensive behaviors, they're normally going to be irrational. Defending yourself rationally makes sense. If someone's constantly on the attack, on the attack, you can say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to hear it anymore. I don't, I'm not going to subject myself to this constant barrage of abuse. Goodbye. That's not defensive behaviors in, as far as defensiveness is, you know, defensive behaviors are deemed. Okay. Defensiveness in an irrational form, which is what we're talking about, it normally stems from how we are taught to deal with things, okay, and how we are taught to deal with things that we don't like, like criticisms um, or being punished for doing something wrong at a very young age. If we feel that we are being attacked and that we feel exposed and open to more attack that is where defense mechanisms and these behaviors kind of flourish. That's when they happen. So, for example, if you're a child and your parent pulls you up and says, did you do this? And you admit to doing it and the punishment is really severe, you're going to think, fuck, I just went out on a fucking limb to be honest and I just got absolutely slammed the child feels exposed, they feel vulnerable, they feel attacked, they feel that in that moment there's no repair. Not only did they do something wrong, but they opened themselves up, tried to be honest, and then they feel like they're being punished for being honest. And so then they think, I'm never going to be honest again because I might as well, I might as well lie and take my chances next time, at least. Because when I'm honest, it's a 100% hit rate of being punished. If I lie, then, you know, it's a 50-50 thing. That's how a child interprets it. I think that's how most people would interpret it. And then that's where this behavior of defensive um, – well, that, well, that's where this pattern of defensive behavior starts showing. Alternatively, what some parents do, which I believe is, you know, a pretty good idea, is where they'll give an option. They'll say, listen, if, you, if I find out that you're lying – and you did do this, this is going to be the punishment. So you let the child know. However, if you're honest right now and you did do it and you tell me, then this will be the punishment this time. If you do it again, it'll be a lot worse, but this will be the punishment this time. It's not going to be as severe because I think you need to be rewarded for your honesty. So you kind of give the child options. You give the child understanding of values of honesty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, obviously I'm not a parent, but that's kind of where, like, if a child's being absolutely slammed for these behaviours, they're going to avoid it. They're not stupid. So they're going to see a pattern. They're going to see what works for them, what doesn't. And that's why a lot of kids lie, because it works for them. Now, let's talk about dealing with someone being defensive, dealing with a defensive person. So we probably all know somebody who is impossible to talk to about anything where you're pulling them up on something or suggesting that they change something or you're giving them feedback. They just get so offended and their walls come up, they get upset, they shut you off, they won't give you the information that you're asking for and they just won't cooperate. So you could try and approach it gently but some people instantly will put their walls up, they see it coming a mile away and they'll be like, I never said this, I never did that and they'll flip something around and accuse you of the thing that you're accusing them of. If you pull them up on something, they'll turn around and say, your attitude has been this, that, that. You've been in the foulest mood. You're attacking me because of this. I can't deal with this anymore. This is just too much. I might as well not even bother. 
that's defensive behavior, okay? That is them being easily offended and defensive, okay? And this could be that they may not have learned to accept feedback um, or criticism. And because of it, it makes this person feel really uncomfortable when they do receive it. And it could also be that they have a lot of pent-up emotions. And when the opportunity arises and they feel a little bit attacked, they could be responding to you really viciously, but it's actually in response to something else that's going on in their life. It doesn't make it okay. Not at all. I hate when that happens, but that's what happens. Now, one thing that I want you to think about when dealing with somebody who's defensive is, and just be really aware of your own behaviors in this, is that it is really, really, really easy to get caught up in their behaviors and how they lash out and to get involved and start mirroring back their behaviors, in particular, finger pointing. That's a huge one. If you are dating somebody, I mean, this is with any relationship, but it often happens in romantic relationships when you're dating someone and they're very defensive. They'll start blame, pointing the finger, pointing the finger, pointing the finger when you've raised one thing. And then it's really easy for you to get so frustrated that they're not arguing the topic that's supposed to be argued about, that they're not taking ownership. They're now attacking you, being like, bang, 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 you this, you that, you did this, you didn't do that. That then it's really easy to be like, well shine the mirror back at them and you start bang, 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 pointing the finger back at them, back at them. And this is a very common cycle that occurs in a lot of relationships. And when one person gets defensive, it's so easy to bounce off that energy because it's impossible to reason with them. So you think, you're fucking impossible to reason with. I might as well get on your ridiculous level and see if that works. So that's where you're so frustrated that it's easy to get worked up. It's easy to attack them back. And that's where arguments begin. That's where arguments happen. And when it ends, you think, we fucking got nowhere. We absolutely got nowhere. We ended up like walking away from each other, furious, and we just need to cool off before we can talk. Nothing has been achieved, okay? It never works and it always will turn into a vicious cycle. So what I recommend, just a couple of things, if you are dealing with somebody who is defensive, is the first thing you should do is number one, create a safe space for this person and for your partner, okay? And mind you, mind you, mind you, mind you, before I get into this, I'm not talking about dating emotionally abusive people who are awful, X, Y, Z. Those people you need to dump in a heartbeat. What I'm talking about is people who are generally great fucking people, people that you want to be in a relationship with, people that you're dating, people that you want to be able to to reason with and talk about certain things and you want to be able to expand on that part of the relationship. They're not toxic. The relationship isn't toxic, okay? So you're going to create a safe space for them and you want to let them know that your intention is to raise something so that both of you can improve the relationship. It's really important, as frustrating as it is, if you're dealing with somebody who is very defensive, but you love them, you want to be with them, you're you're set on them, they're just an absolute legend, you have to try something different. You have to try something new. Now, you don't have – it's not your responsibility to change them, but you're doing yourself a favour if you try these things. It just makes your life easier. You obviously don't have to do shit, but it just causes more friction if you don't attempt a few behaviours to make it easier to deal with them. This is more for you than it is for them. Okay, so I would recommend you create a safe space where you're kind of, you've got to open it up and say, look, I don't want this to be an attack at all. I'm aware that I probably do shit that infuriates you too. And when I do, please pull me up on it. However, I notice that you're constantly doing this. Would it be possible next time to do it a different way? Or 
is there another way that you prefer doing it that I haven't even thought about? So that way you kind of bring the conversation in and hopefully they look at that as an invitation to brainstorm how something could be done again. Or they, you know, they know that you are aware that you also have your flaws and you also have your behaviours, but you just want to be talking about this one thing right now, okay? So that's the first thing that I would recommend. The second thing is always approach with a calm head. If you are annoyed at something that they've done and you're dealing with someone who's always defensive, you will never achieve anything approaching a defensive person with a hot head because that's when it turns into uh, shifting the blame, 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 anger, anger, anger. You walk away from each other, like what I was just talking about before we get caught up in finger pointing, okay? Always approach with a calm head. You can't be annoyed for them getting pissed off if you are pissed off, okay? It's fine to be pissed off. I'm not some fucking saint martyr who never – I fucking get pissed off. I get pissed off at times. We all get pissed off. But if you are pissed off and then they get pissed off, you don't have a leg to stand on, okay? You've got to try and calm calm your fucking farm and just approach it in a certain way, okay? And it's a lot harder – to deal with a defensive person if you're already like at your wits end blowing up at them, okay? And I get it. I get it's frustrating, but I'm saying it won't help you at all if you go in with a hot head. You have to keep your cool, okay? It's very easy to see it in somebody else when they're annoyed, but very difficult to identify it in ourselves when we're annoyed. We might think we have a cool head, and we're, but it's so easy to turn a blind eye when you're pissed off but other people can taste it in the fucking air, okay? So it's easy to be like, you're annoyed, you're this, you're that, but you're coming in with this intense energy as well. Allow the energy to subside. Take a fucking chill pill, breathe, and then approach this person when you are calm. If you are not calm, do it in an hour, do it tomorrow, okay? The next thing to think about is when it comes to someone who's defensive, less is more, okay? So if you see this person go into that pattern, don't try and control where their head is going. Don't try and make them do something or feel something. Don't try and say, you're doing this, you're doing that. The, minim- the more minimal your reaction can be to their defensive behavior, the better. Don't react or the reaction, make it as minimal as possible. Stand there and observe. Okay, they'll be going on this, that, blowing up. And then you can just literally, all you have to say is, I see this is not a good time to talk about it. Shall we talk about it tomorrow? No attacking, you're getting defensive, you're fucking this, you're fuck, fuck you, you're fuck, fuck, fuck. That gets you nowhere, okay? Less is more. Pay attention, shut your mouth, watch them. Because when this person is blowing up at you or saying all these ridiculous things, I've always said this, the the spotlight is always on the last thing that was said, the most recent thing that was said. So allow them to talk, but don't give off anything if they're being ridiculous. And after they said their piece or, you know, attacked you or whatever, that's when you say, I can say this is not a good time. Do you want to talk tomorrow? Or I don't want to discuss it if we're going to be getting angry at each other. Shall we talk about this tomorrow? Would you rather write it down? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that brings you to the fourth bit, which is always offer to discuss something at another time as calmly as possible, okay? Because we all know that it's impossible to reason, someone, reason with someone who's going down this ridiculous, unreasonable way of arguing. So always put that offer on the table. Always, 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 always. So then they can never turn around and say, you cornered me, you attacked me, never. They can never pin you to that because you can always say, 
would you prefer we talk about this at another time? I want this to be a really calm and constructive conversation for our relationship. So if you're not up for talking about it now, I'm more than happy to talk about it at another time. Okay. You always want to preface things like that. So that way they think, oh, okay. That, like they, 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 they have to think twice about their behavior and the way that they're talking. If they then turn around and say, no, nah, this, no, 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 walk away. Just say, like I said, I only want to be calm about this. You know, I understand that you might have, you know, but I only want to be calm about this. I'm not getting into a fight. If you want to have a fight, you're going to have to have it with yourself on your own. I'm not getting involved, okay? And that's when you walk away. And eventually, they're going to start to see a pattern that you will not stand for that behavior, that you only ever want to discuss something calmly and that you're trying to create a safe space for them, okay? Because it's really, really difficult for this person to feel safe unless it's become a pattern where they realize, okay, I'm not being attacked. Another thing that you should always pay attention to is make sure that you never character assassinate. And I mentioned this briefly a little bit earlier, but character assassinating is when you say, you are this, you're so this, you're fucking whatever. That is so unnecessary when you're arguing. It's really easy to shift straight to that when you're very frustrated. I'm sure we've all been there. I'm sure we've all said it. I definitely have, 100%. We've all been there. But it's really, really, really um, damaging to where your argument or where your conversation is going. It doesn't help you and it really does not do anything for the person that's being defensive at all. Try to never, ever, ever character assassinate. Keep it about what they did or the task that was at hand or what they're doing or how they behave. You know, I feel that that was, that I feel that that action was unfair, not your unfair, you know, just try and try and shift, not pointing at them saying you, 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 your personality, who you are as a person is this, is shit, it's fucked, it's un- unreliable, unfair. Just say, look, when you do that, those behaviours are pretty unreliable. So I don't know what to do in that blah, 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 you know, or when you're talking about a task that they did that they didn't do properly around the house, just say this wasn't done properly, not you're so messy, you're a disaster. You have to try and keep it task specific because if you turn it around and character assassinate, it proves their point to themselves. It proves, ah, when I do something wrong, I get attacked. Me as a person get attacked, so that makes them retreat. Become somebody who never attacks your partner's personality or whoever you're dealing with. Ideally, you never want to attack anybody's personality if you can avoid it. But make a promise to yourself and say, especially to the people that I love, especially to the people that matter to me, I'm going to really do my best to never attack their person, to never attack who they are as an individual. And I want to hold hold myself to that because then I've got nothing to regret. Then I know I've never, you know, you can still have arguments, you can still be passionate about things, but try and make it specific to the thing that was done or to the thing that needs doing, okay? You'll feel a lot better. You'll have less regrets when it comes to certain conversations that have gone down or arguments that have gone down. And your partner, whether they realize it consciously or not, is going to start feeling safer around you because they never get directly attacked by you. It's very, very important to to embrace that in your relationship. And separate to them being defensive, let them know, that you're going to start doing that too. Let them know that you... And, and even it, what's really good with someone who's defensive is to 
show them that you're comfortable acknowledging your flaws. You could say to your partner, and it doesn't even need an argument to do this, you could say to your partner, you know what, I realise that when we argue, I sometimes will name call you or I'll assassinate your character and I don't like that. I don't like that I do that or I don't like that we do that and I'm going to make a really good conscious effort to never do that to you again because it's unfair and I'd like the same in return but I, whether you want to or not but I, I'm going to make a promise that I don't want to be doing – that I'm going to try my best to not do that to you because that's not what arguing is about. That's not – an argument in a relationship should be to reach some sort of – you know, agreement or to hash something out. Ideally, you know, it's not a screaming match, but it's, you know, that's why we have arguments in relationships because we're trying to see each other's point. We're trying to get to the middle and we're trying to, you know, sometimes it gets passionate, it gets fiery, that's okay, but make that promise to yourself. And I can guarantee you from every argument from here onwards, every disagreement, you'll walk away feeling a lot better about yourself because you treated your partner with more respect, okay? So that is my recommendation for you guys. Hopefully that opened your eyes about defensiveness and defensive behavior, why people do it, where it stems from, and how you can slowly start to rewrite that so the person feels less attacked, they're more open to talking about it. It's a bit of a slow journey with a defensive person. It takes time. But most of the time it comes down with how they learn to accept feedback um, and criticism and they you know, linked that to their sense of self and that's why it's happening. So don't hate on defensive people, kind of understand where it's coming from, but then see that there's a lot that you can do to make your life a whole lot easier. So that's me wrapping up the topic of today's episode. I am now going to answer a listener question. I'm going to put these listener questions at the end of every episode. So this is a listener question that got emailed in. Hopefully you guys can identify or or see similarities between other people's stories and your own and you can learn from them as well. Let's get straight into it. Hello. Question. How do you think someone can go about finding their true authentic self? I love it when you encourage us to be our true authentic selves and I love the idea of it, but it really makes me realize that I have no idea who I am. I spent my whole youth with everyone picking me apart and constantly telling me everything that is wrong with me, straight into devoting myself to raising my children. I can't even tell anymore which parts of my personality are my natural self versus behaviours I adapted forever ago just to appease my lifelong critics. Thank you so much for your podcast. My daughter and I adore you and I'm incredibly grateful she has found a healthy role model in you. Thank you. That is really nice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm very glad that you and your daughter are listening to my podcast. I love that so much. Okay, my advice to you, this is a tricky one because I totally get what you're saying about the fact that you don't know what's really you and what you've kind of absorbed throughout your life and kind of made it part of you. Now, some of the things that you absorb in your life and made it part of you are great things that actually do become who you are. That's what life is. Life is experiences that shape us and We can allow things to shape us and make it who we are or we can shed things that don't serve us and we can kind of like steer it the way we want it to go and kind of, yep, I'll take that. No, thank you very much. I'll put that back on the shelf, okay? But so don't think that everything that has happened is not you. If you've invited it in and it serves you, then it is you. So it's not necessarily, oh, because someone influenced that on me, it's definitely not me. You might have adopted that as being something that is you. 
But my advice to you on this idea of finding your true authentic self is to start small. Don't think that you've got to know every aspect of who you are and everything about you in an instant. That's very overwhelming. That's really hard to know from the get-go. And you're an ever-evolving being. So you're not going to have – you can't just have like a snapshot of who you are and that's it. So what I would do instead – is to start really small and focus on the times where you are most at peace, okay? So you've got to think of moments where you feel the least judged. That's how I would put it. Now, these moments can be when you're alone. They could be when there's like maybe there's one person in your life that's that person where you are so yourself that you could be silent and not think, oh, I need to be saying something or that you could just – vent or be funny and if the joke doesn't land you don't feel remotely embarrassed that person now there may exist someone like that in your life or they may not and that's okay but if there is someone like that how does it feel when you're around that person a really good way of figuring out how it feels when you're absolutely not judged at all is how are you how do you behave when you're around your pet or an animal you know when you're just it's just you and a dog you and your cat you know that's when you're most at ease, I would say, because you know that they're not judging you. Well, lol, maybe they are, but we, we, it feels like they're not judging you and they just, you know, accept you for who you are. And it's that feeling of, okay, I'm calm in my own skin. I'm comfortable. Those are the moments where you have to lean into and pay attention to how you are feeling. And when you pay attention to that feeling of calm, I feel good. I feel relaxed then you can start to pay attention to where your mind wanders to in those times. What, does, what are the things that excite you? What are the things that, that you are in the mood to do? What are the things that you're like, oh, I really want to you know, watch this thing or I really would love to go and do X, Y, Z. That's how you start to lean into your authentic self in the sense that it's you in your truest form with everything stripped back. You're not trying to play a role. You're not trying to pretend. You're just being, you know. So you, this might be just you alone or it could be just you with an animal or another person. Then the next step from that is to start doing things. I've got a whole episode on alone versus being alone. One of the really good ways to start getting more authentic within yourself is to start doing things alone and just getting really used to your own company. It's really hard to know exactly who you are and what you want and what you're doing if you don't know or don't like being alone. Now, I don't know if that's the case for you. I'm not sure. But it, it definitely helps your cause to spend more time doing things just for you. And then you start to really tap into, actually, I do like this or I don't like this. Or, wow, I was only doing this. I was only said that I liked action movies because my friend likes action movies. Or I only said that I, whatever. You know, when you start doing more things alone, you think, actually, that's not really my vibe. I'm actually being pulled to do this thing or to watch that or to read this genre or to wear these clothes. Do you know what I mean? And that can only truly be discovered when you tap into yourself and ask yourself those questions, okay? So two things I want you to focus on. Try and spend more time in those moments where you feel the least judged, where you feel like completely you could be anyone and no one would even blink. And that's obviously when you're either alone or with that one person who's so accepting of everything about you and loves it or a pet and then another one is spend more time alone and pay attention to where your mind wanders, to where you, where you, what you're craving, what you're doing. Time alone, time alone. Check out the episode 
being alone versus being lonely. And that might give you some insight into things that you can do while you are alone. Hopefully that helped. Um, I can imagine that I, I know that it's really common for a lot of mothers in particular who, you know, spend years and years and years, you know, raising a family and then they kind of feel like, what's my identity? Because it's so, the lines are so blurred now, you know. Of course, being a mother is a huge part of who you are. But then it's like, where's my independent identity separate to that? Like, you're still your own person separate to that. And I feel like for a lot of people, and I've been, like, I've, so many people have written into me saying that they struggle with that divide between, you know, separating their independent self from the title of being a mother and what that entails and what that feels like. So not an easy thing to do, but it is doable. And the more time you spend alone and doing things for you, the easier it is to tap into your authentic self. And you're going to realize what you stand for, what you don't, what you want, what you don't want, who you want to hang out with, who you don't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It gets easier to say no to things. It gets easier to just stand your ground. Hopefully that helped. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for sending um, your questions. Guys, if you do want to send any questions, it is to the email info at dyfmpod.com. Amazing. Guys, that is all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you could take something away from that episode. As always, remember, be kind to yourself. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone. And especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.